0: It is time to begin, so let's go ahead and do that as we continue our study of the doctrine of the church, and we've been specifically starting to delve into some of the um, proofs using Thomas Witherow's book, The Apostolic Church, which is it, as kind of a guide loosely um, to help us. Uh, biblically defend Presbyterianism, which is, of course, lots of fun. Um, We should not just defend Presbyterianism because, hey, it works for us. We should not defend Presbyterianism because it's the American way. Um, Actually, even at the time of the uh, American Revolution, if you will... Some across the pond even called the American Revolution a Presbyterian Revolution. Um, So uh, we need to be able to defend it, at least to a small degree biblically. We ought to be able to look at certain passages and derive certain truths, Um, and it does become difficult because some of the things, many of the things are, are observed and supported in various ways elsewhere. So as I've mentioned in the past, those of you that know, I was a math teacher previously, used to teach geometry, do geometry proofs. And, and inductive reasoning can be a difficult thing. Because you you generally can't prove something inductively. You see patterns, and you may be able to make certain logical conclusions, but how do you know it's going to work the next time? That's always the thing. Um, But a lot of times when we're looking at biblical principles, we're only given observations and, and certain things that we find. And To a certain degree, we see some of that even in our defense of Presbyterianism. Now, what Thomas Witherow does is he gives us what he found to be six um, principles that he saw in the New Testament church to help us see, um, in part, contrast other forms of church government, but also support of what we would understand as being Presbyterianism. So, I'm just curious, how many of you have read Witherow's book before? The elders better raise their hand, <laughs> since I did it with them. Um, good. So, Witherow gives six principles. Some of you that may have read this, that's fine. And again, I believe you can find it online. It's not a very fat book. So there are six principles, and to be honest, I have no idea why Witherow chose the order that he gave his six principles. Um, he didn't really express, that I can recall, uh, a reason for the particular order that he went through them. In fact, what he has, has last, I would have put first, but okay, that's just me. So here, just quickly, here are his six basic principles. The first one is that the office bearers are chosen by the people. So the congregation, in other words, has a hand, if you will, in deciding who the office bearers are going to be. Second principle, the office of elder and bishop are actually the same thing. You've heard me state that a lot. The third principle is that there is always in Scripture a plurality of elders. Fourth principle, that ordinary, not ordinarily, ordination is an act of that plurality of elders. And so, for example, if we're talking about the ordination of a minister, it is typically in the hands of the presbytery, the regional church. <clears throat> the fifth principle, and I've talked about this one quite a lot also, the right of appeal to the next higher level. And then the last principle, which I would have put first, is the sole headship of Christ over the church. So those are the six basic principles. If you missed it, well, we're gonna go through these a little bit. And then if you still miss it, you can find them online. It's really that simple. So I wanna kinda go through these. Office bearers chosen by the people. And what I wanna do is, let's go to Acts chapter 14. there's a, a simple little verse here that is, is just very easy to miss. Um, verse 23. Um, really, you've got uh, Paul's missionary journey, first missionary journey, and at, after they're basically stoned in Lystra, look at verse 23. And when they had appointed elders, you see plural, elders for them in every church. With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so the emphasis there, and it's not just there. That's the pattern that seems to be what Paul and Barnabas initially did. And then, of course, afterward, Paul and Silas and Paul and Timothy and you notice also what Paul says to Timothy, you can look there in 1 Timothy chapter 1, you know, I left you to put in order that which was needed to be finished, appointing elders, plural. So this seems to be the pattern. You're not gonna find a verse that explicitly says to you, you need to have a plurality of elders. You need to have X number of elders per communicant member, shall we say. But you do see the pattern. Many of the epistles that Paul writes, he addresses to who? Elders. Not just the church, but the elders, the deacons in the church. Chase? Uh, Okay, that's problematic. All right, so was you going to deal with the specific Greek word there like Thomas Woodrow did? Uh, Which word? For elder? Uh, yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get to that. And that has to do with the question of what we would call ordination for all practical purposes uh, and the appointing of officers in the church. Jonathan? So it seems like this principle is taken from description, not prescription. Correct. It does, and provided a couple of things. It doesn't contradict other scripture. That's a fundamental thing. Um, And um, you have to ask yourself, is it descriptive of something that is really unique? This isn't, because you can see they appointed elders in every church, not just this one situation, plus what you see in other areas of scripture that are not you know, absolute set-in-stone proof, but support it. When Paul writes at the churches, frequently he addresses the elders, plural. Right. I'm, I'm assuming whether it was kind of like a beginner level entry into this, is Bannerman the one who would tie things back to the Old Testament? Yeah, but both Bannermans would. Yeah, there's two. Most don't know about the second one. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So you've got um, James Bannerman, who's that's kind of considered the essential work. Um, But you've also got a work by his, which I think is his son, uh, Douglas David Bannerman, where James Bannerman takes what you might call a systematic theology approach, The other Bannerman takes more of a redemptive historical approach or a biblical theological approach. And so you will find a lot of Old Testament references. I'm going to guess a lot thicker. No, they're they're both pretty thick. Well, I mean, yeah, a lot thicker than biblical. Oh, yeah, absolutely, significantly. Now, James Bannerman, if I recall correctly, his is actually a collection of essays or lectures that he did. So... Keep that in mind. So yeah, that's an aspect of it. So a plurality of elders. And so by way of example, in the OPC, if we're looking to establish a congregation from a mission work, you got to make sure you've got at least two elders so that it is not run by a single individual. And so when we were a mission work, when Providence was a mission work, The only elder that was present was me. That's not really going to be conducive. So that's why we have mission works under the oversight either of an already existing session, another congregation, which in this case was under the oversight of Westminster OPC in their session, or the presbytery would appoint a provisional session of nearby officers to help uh, be, well, provisional elders to them until such time that they can appoint their own. But you need that plurality. And even some of the things that we do ought to demonstrate plurality of elders. So for instance, when we, as a mission work, would have the Lord's Supper once a month, like we do now, and another elder would come down from Westminster to help with the uh, participation and, and distributing of the elements, that in part demonstrates a plurality of elders. Now, I don't think maybe somebody can make the argument. I don't think our book, of church order expressly forbids hey if I'm the only one here but what demonstrates Presbyterianism better one man doing it or a plurality of elders so really just it's good order to demonstrate that kind of a thing does that make sense Conrad with respect to plurality of elders if a church has you see this in the Baptist several pastors, but they don't have an elder board per se. Would you argue that meets the same criteria It fits the bill? Or do you I you think there's danger in not having any lay elders? Well, you certainly fit the bill of having a plurality of elders. Um, not having lay elders, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, there are occasions where our provisional sessions for mission works will just be ministers just because that's the nature of the circumstance we find ourselves. Um, But, yeah. Chase? Yeah, (laughs) that that would be a, a pretty extreme, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. But the the pendulum swung all the way for a two office view, elder and deacon, whereas elder is the same. So all right, so that's kind of the first principle: that plurality of elders. So. Again, just take notice. You know, we begin those, those uh, epistles. You know, Paul, an apostle of, of Jesus Christ. Paul, a bondservant of Christ. To the church in such and such. To the elders, to the deacons. Don't pass those over as just simple. Those are also written under the, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And a lot of times, they give us clues as to the direction that Paul's gonna go in that specific epistle. Some intros are a lot longer than others, like in Romans, for instance, that's a long introduction. Um, some are short, just the way it is. Yeah, Jonathan? Uh, I noticed that we skipped the, like how Wiki, like makes like, a definition, the meaning of the word church. And- well, that's because we talked about that along in the early um, okay. portion of this Yeah, he doesn't really get into that in this book. You'd have to, because he's really just focused on the church government side of things. Right, okay. so that not bound, well, Bannerman certainly does touch it. Um, and then, of course, pretty much any, uh, any reformed systematic theology will touch on that as being an institution of the church. So, All right, so that's the first principle the idea that the office bearers are chosen by the people. Um, You've got elder and bishop being the same. Now, this gets a little bit tricky because you do have instances where Paul addresses the bishops and others where he addresses the elders. But I think probably the key place, and I've pointed this out before, is if we turn to Titus chapter 1, And notice he he does the same thing with Titus that he did with Timothy, leaves him someplace to finish what was started. So verse 5 of Titus 1, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, a husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach, etc. Those are the two different words where we get Presbyterian and Episcopalian from. So notice that Paul is laying out appoint elders, and then he gives a description, and then you have four. So it's a continuing argument, an overseer, which indicates that he's still talking about the same office. So right away, what's he answering? He charge the the of the presbyters. Okay, yeah. also from Jerome specifically where he repudiates that. He's yeah. The same. And it was like this, it was just Yeah, it is always fascinating to me from that church history side of things that when Roman Catholics want to cite the early church fathers, they're all in agreement until you actually read them. And then you right. t- point it out to them, and it's like, well, we don't, we don't agree with that one, but they're all in agreement. Yeah. So, And I realize that I'm putting that in a very simplistic way because there's, it's voluminous how much of early church fathers wrote. Uh, there's plenty, uh, plenty that they wrote. But yes, they're, they're not all in agreement. Um, and this issue of church government is one of them. Now, to be sure, over time, that is one of the things that early on started to happen. You know, bishops and and, and so forth. But so by, by that logic, if you're going to say because it happened early, therefore it must be okay, well, let's look at all the epistles. What are they doing? They're correcting the deviations that Correct. happened even earlier. Right. Sorry. So, for instance, like the proto Gnosticism that we see in, in John and First John, right. that that's an early problem. Um, so th- th- it just reminds us that. You know what Ecclesiastes says: "There's nothing new under the sun" is so true. Um, yeah. All right. So, hey, so just keep that in mind. This this passage here in Titus helps bring together what we see, at least in terms of the church, the office of bishop and the office of elder, that they really are the same thing. And again, as you look, as you see, as you go through particularly the introductions of each of the epistles, note what Paul says. Even John, he refers to himself as the elder, for instance. But notice when you see elder or overseer, that is typically, at least in the ESV, typically the distinction of words between where we get presbytery or episkopos, you know, the Greek word for overseer there. So they're really the same office. Are we good? Which by the way, that you know what that means in terms of understanding that truth? It's actually okay to call the elders a bishop. We generally don't because of the connotations that are connected to either Episcopalianism or Roman Catholicism. I'm gonna wear that word out now. Somehow I know you will. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah hey, but we can do that if you, you know. Happy birthday, Bishop Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, and, and that's the thing. And that—that's uh, actually. You speak of the hat. You know, we've got a lot of guys, and this is a bit of a tangent. Um, that. Like to wear the like the Genevan robe, for instance, in preaching. I don't think it's that big of a deal. I, I, no, I just don't want to. Um, it's warm enough up there. It is warm enough up there. People always ask me, is it is it too warm in here? It's all, for me. It's always too warm in here. So never ask me. Okay, just right there. But yeah, that's one aspect of it. But I don't I don't see that there's a need. To, to have a, uh, a, a robe to distinguish me in that sense. I, I let the word do the work uh, is really what it boils down to. All right, so we've got two principles. Um, I talked I, I really did already touch on this plurality of elders, um, and then also the fact that they are that, well, the aspect where they're supposed to be chosen by the people. Um, This is where, for instance, let's turn back to Acts chapter 7, or 6 actually. And this is where we're also going to touch on the word that is frequently used, appointed or ordained, depending on the context. And if you want, you can keep your finger back there in Acts 14, because it has kind of the same idea that we're looking at. Um, So right there at the beginning of chapter six. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Okay, notice that the apostles could have just said, we're apostles, here are the seven that we choose for you. But that's not what they did. They went and said, we think the number seven, and it, this is, by the way, a case where I don't think uh, you should read too much into the number seven, okay? If you're talking about the book of Revelation, yeah, okay, that's fine, but not, not in this instance. Choose seven men from among you, Notice that the apostles give the church instruction. You choose the men. The other thing is, if you want to flip back to Acts 14, 23, same verse we looked at earlier. It's an appointment of elders, plural, but that word there for appoint, Witherer marks it out, and he is not the only one. You will find this just about anywhere that the word that is used there basically has as its root meaning a point by a show of hands. What we might call a vote. So who's the one showing their hands? Well, it's gotta be the congregation. They're appointed by the already existing officers at the behest of the congregation who showed their hands to say, this is who we wanted. And so that's why very early on when we talked about church power, I tried to remind you folks in our book of Church Order does a good job of this. You actually exercise church power. There is the office of general believer. You can think of it in those terms. And so you are endowed with the power to be able to choose from among yourselves officers. And that's what takes place. That's what you see in Acts chapter 6 with the first deacons. That's what you see in Acts chapter 14 with that word appointed. The word itself does indicate an appointment by Paul and Barnabas, but it was as a result of a show of hands among the people. And this was the pattern in every church. Are we good? Another place where there was a a show of hands, if you will, to to a large degree, you go back to Acts chapter one. And the appointment of, the apostle to replace Judas how was that done there's there's a couple things that happened how was that done there was a casting of lots but how did they come up with the two people there were certain criteria and what was one of the criteria yeah what else who picked the two men It was the total group at that time, and that's the key thing. And so now when we're talking about the casting of lots, that's unique. That's the, and as far as I know, in terms of something that, uh, that kind of a nature, that was really the last uh, effective casting of lots in, in that sense. And the other aspect of it is it was for the replacement of an apostle, and there were other criteria, but the, the group, the church as it existed, chose the two men, put forth, and the final decision rested on the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's just it. It was only to decide to decide between two already qualified men. Correct. Jonathan? Against what? Against the people where the officers was chosen by the people. I mean, Rome probably doesn't have a table. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, basically, a lot of uh, churches that hold to a prelacy, they're appointed by the already existing bishops. They may make one, but it it's of course based on Matthew sixteen and the apostolic succession and the priesthood and the pope and all that. You know? Yeah. There are some Anabaptist churches that I'm aware of that have continued using casting of lots as a means yeah. to select. Right. I mean I think that's putting way too much emphasis on that one be situation. Right. those are. that's really what it boils down to with the apostles there's certainly or the replacement of Judas it is in some respects a very unique thing but it does at least in one sense set the tone that Peter and the other 11 didn't just get up and say you're the guy it started with them p- here's a list of criteria which ones and then even then it's not like with the two men left, the 11 said this one. No, it was the casting of the lots by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, Rachel? What about the newer trend where churches are more trying to operate as a business model? What are they trying to do? Or like- I honestly have no idea. Yeah. like staff is making business decisions. Yeah. Well, that's what happens. Because you become so big and you've only got a small handful relative to the size of the congregation that are ruling elders, shall we say, they, they can't, how are they going to decide like things like, well, okay, who's going to be our uh, provider for air conditioning service and, and this? And, and you got all these branch ministries that really end up functioning as just parachurch organizations, and unfortunately, that, that's part of my issue with um, even among Reformed and Presbyterianist churches that get so large, they end up becoming more of a board of directors than actual elders. And that's, that's the danger. I'm not saying you can't have a church with a thousand people. It, it can function, but it's very easy for it to turn into a business model instead of a church model. And then... The flip side of it, too, is you frequently have situations where, you know, the church leadership looks at a business owner. Well, you're a successful business owner. You should be an elder. Hmm. That's not saying a successful business owner can't be an elder, but it's not an automatic. So, Jonathan? Jonathan? So why do we use that unique descriptive circumstance to rule out the continuation of apostles or even that we could vote in an apostle at this point because the criteria there is unique and descriptive? Um, What you find unique is another apostle. At no point, how did the church... When did you ever have an apostle that betrayed Jesus, except for Judas. That's why it's unique. You're not going to have a circumstance like that again. You just can't. And the other aspect of it is, what you see in Peter's description of what an apostle, capital A, is, well, you can't have that anymore. That's it. And you go, well, yeah, but what about the apostle Paul? Well, Jesus met Paul. That's the again, unique circumstance. Right. And that's where the distinction comes. So what would you do if somebody said, Jesus, Jesus met me? I'm an apostle. I'm called by Jesus. Which is probably what people end up doing Yeah uh, yeah, I'm sure some people say that. I honestly I rarely give anybody that kind of time. No. Honestly, because that that's an individual, they, they they are basically, and I know this sounds harsh, but they are basically deceiving themselves and trying to convince everybody around them that they alone, it might as well be Joseph Smith. What's the difference? Well, I think that's probably why some people don't take Paul seriously, right? Even well, that could be, but I think ultimately they don't want to take Paul seriously because they can't handle what Paul teaches. That's fundamentally what it is. Conrad? Correct. The apostles, you can't get rid of the firm. Oh, right. I see the ties. You know, Luke is written on the gospels, right. and he runs out with Paul. You know, right. I, I see it, but I I don't see the case very strongly against if we're using that descriptive, unique moment against continuing apostles. Where's it's, where's the strong? Well, it, it's not so much use that against continuing apostles. It's just that everything else indicates there is no other circumstance where we appointed apostles. That's what it is. Yeah, so that's the one circumstance besides Paul. Right. Because every other situation is appointing elders and deacons. That's it. How does function? Um, any formal decisions need to be done in session. Um, that's really what it boils down to. Now, ideally, it would be good if two elders could go on a visitation, for instance. That's ideal. Is that required? Not necessarily. I, I've done both as myself or with a plurality to home visits before, and that's not just here. It's been in other churches, same idea. Um, Some things are just uh, practical in terms of the life of an individual, but if it has to do with the life of the church, then that's going to have to be a decision by the session. So somebody asked me or Gordon or Ron or Dave advice in, in their life, one on one, that's fine. Now, if the elder realizes, hey, this is a heavy duty issue, and that can happen, then he brings it to the session and we can discuss it that way or field more, you know, pose more questions and just try to ascertain. But in the everyday an elder just conversation can can guide, instruct, and open up God's word. That's not an issue. But things that affect the church, it really does have to be a decision of the church. The session. Yeah. Isn't it true that there are some conservative scholars who feel that choosing Matthias in Acts one was premature, and Paul was actually should have filled the twelfth spot? I've read that once or twice. Almost nobody takes that thought seriously. Because Matthias is never mentioned. He's not. But 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 the thing about it is, many of the other apostles aren't either. So that's why it's a pretty weak argument. Where do we ever hear of Thomas again? After John's gospel, that's it. What's that? Right, well, that's just it, but that's only just church tradition. And he may well have gone to India, I don't know. Um, But in the Bible, we don't hear him again. So, all right. We sort of covered three. Let's see where we're at. Ah, related to the plurality of elders, ordination an act of the plurality of elders, or in the case of the ministers, the OPC and even the PCA does it, uh, an act of the presbytery. Um, Typically, for instance, this um, appointing usually takes place with the laying on of hands. Now, One specific passage um, that I usually like to go to has to do with Timothy's situation. When he was, uh, when Paul mentions that he was put into his position, it was by the laying on of hands. Now, this can be found in 1 Timothy, I think it's chapter 4, I think it's chapter 4, verse 17. 14. I was close. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. And again, this is a situation that is descriptive of what transpired. Part of what Paul is trying to encourage Timothy to not worry about, because Timothy was a little timid. But now you come to verse 14. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So that's kind of the pattern that we see, this idea. And, and this, this is not a New Testament phenomenon. The laying on of hands is not just a uniquely New Testament thing. So there is a symbolic act uh, in terms of ordination with a laying on of hands, the idea of a visible manifestation to represent the spirit coming upon the person to be equipped and given the authority to do the task for which he is appointed. And that's what happened with Timothy. And so you see the laying on of hands there. Um, and that's why at ordination services, the elders lay on the hands as part of the act of ordination. Conrad? Does the OPC with their missionaries recognize them in the role of evangelists, evangelist where they can themselves ordain elders in the churches they command? Or does that still have to go through a process? It really still has to go through a process. They won't do it on their own. And it may involve flying somebody in. Now, in today's day and age, that's a little bit easier. Sure. Relatively speaking. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just heard the argument that biblically the office evangelist is somebody who's uniquely equipped to go plant churches, them themselves yeah. plant churches. and themselves. Yeah, and see that's where it does get a little bit tricky because for instance even Witherow says that. Right. Witherow equates evangelists, not quite equates, but almost equates apostle with evangelists. Um, I don't see that that's really the case. And neither does the OPC. Right. And really, evangelist, in terms of the OPC nomenclature, the um, evangelist is just a type of teaching elder with a main task being outreach and evangelism. Which, I, you know... A lot of times, guys that uh, domestically that are uh, ordained and installed as an evangelist to a mission work, um, most of the times, they're really functioning as a pastor, not really as an evangelist. There are exceptions. um, And that's something the committee is aware of. (laughs) Right. So, all right. Oh, look at the time. The other two real quick, and then what I hope to do next week is just really uh, deal with ease um, and show how biblically this is what we see, what the other churches lack, where they are strong in or not strong in. The right of appeal we've looked at before. We especially did that with respect to church discipline. Does anybody remember the text that we look at for the right of appeal? Acts 15 with the Jerusalem Council. Start it toward the end of 14, but read through chapter 15. Um, I'll go through that again next week. And then finally, which what I would have put as first, the sole headship of Christ over the church. And so the elders are not the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. And the elders simply ministerially and declaratively minister the word in that sense to the congregation. So, Robert, quick. Yeah, uh, super easy question. Maybe. Yeah, I mean like how would we look at something like this example was, say a man was excommunicated from a a church with uh, like one pastor, no elder board, uh, a sodomy of no plurality no right to appeal, arguing somebody that's the head of the church, what is the way to look at something in that scenario where it's basically just one person against another? Yeah, that's where it gets difficult. If it was literally just one person, that would be problematic, and we would have to kind of investigate the circumstances of it. I would say, though it is irregular, if a Congregationalist church did things properly according to their own form of government, where the church actually voted him out, then we would probably honor it provided it wasn't because, you know, he disliked a particular sermon because of an intricacy or didn't like the fact that we were expanding the building by five feet instead of 10 feet or some weird thing. <laughs> there are times where people, they just don't want to hear arguments. They'll just excommunicate them. Um But it really has to be case by case. That's the difficulty with congregational churches. All right, well, let's close in prayer. Our Father in God in heaven, we do give you praise and thanks that you, through Christ, through the apostles, and now through officers in the church, are growing your kingdom. Lord, continue to do so. We do recognize that there are some difficult things in scripture and some things are not so clear that we do have to figure them out. Give us wisdom. Help us to be humble enough to submit ourselves to your word and not do things according to our own fancy. Lord, we do pray that as we're about to come into your presence to worship you, that you would bless us, prepare us, and may our hearts be filled with joy at the immense and awesome privilege we have to come before you. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen.